0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Four for State, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from Turussiar in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Anthony Dockrell. Tonight's show was recorded recently at the University of Technology as part of a series called Meet the Journalist, and it features ABC's Lee Sales. The interview was conducted by UTS postgrad student Wendy John. So let's hear Lee Sales talk about her career at the ABC and her path to the 730 report.
1: So, Chat 10 Look 3, a bit of a wild old
2: success, yeah? It's been. Amazing, actually, and sort of fun because my journalism career has been so heavily down the serious end of the pool. Um, and I think sort of the rise of social media and um, digital media has meant that the nature of, I guess, journalism has changed. So, this idea that the anchor of a show is this sort of removed person who is just a sort of blank canvas, I guess, and very serious and authoritative. I think that these days we do expect that people have a bit more personality than that. And so that's been sort of really fun for me that after, you know, 20 years of being considered a really serious person... Hard-nosed journalist. ...that I've been able to be a bit lighter and sillier in the podcast.
1: Does that confuse some of your fans? Um, or admirers? I, mean, I, I think that people are
2: sometimes... Well, people sometimes say to me, oh, I'm surprised at how funny you are uh, because <laughs> they watch me on 7.30 where I do not seem even remotely funny. Uh, so that I think people sometimes are a bit sort of surprised by. But no, I think, I think people are able to sort of hold the two things um, together that you can...
1: Be serious in a serious job, but not take yourself too seriously. Mm bit of a lesson for life though isn't it well let's look at um your life in one of your podcast episodes about a year ago you talk about a book called boy swallows universe by trent dalton and it's set in brisbane in the 80s a boy growing up in that time was that a nostalgic read for you it was amazing and i said to um
2: trent dalton i recommend it if anyone hasn't read it, it's a really wonderful novel um (laughs) any other brizzy
1: people here it's you and me, Lee. Uh, <laughs> just be kind. Um, uh, are you north side or south side? South side, sorry. Oh, okay.
2: uh, <laughs> right. Um, it's he has a bit of it that's set in the north side. It's actually a bit all over Brisbane, but there's a key part where they moved to a suburb called Bracken Ridge, which was one suburb away from where I grew up, and um, it was just you don't read books set in Brisbane or very many. There are a handful, um, but you just don't. And so it was really, and it's set in the 1980s when I grew up. So yeah, there was so. Much in it that I felt like, oh my god, that feels like my childhood.
1: Yeah. What was your childhood like? What was your upbringing? Very, a uh, lot of personal
2: freedom. Like, you just from if you, if you weren't at school, from when the sun came up, the expectation was that you'd be out of the house on your bike and that you wouldn't come back until the sun was going down. Um, and nobody really wanted to hear or see you in the interim. So we just rode around the neighbourhood and had tons of adventures and went fishing down the river and. Um, you know, we used to play the Atari downstairs and so my best friend lived around the corner. So we had a very um when I look back at it now I think we've had a really amazing childhood, a lot more freedom, say than my kids have living in, you know, close to inner city Sydney. Um and I just had sort of uh neither of my parents had been to university. They had my father was in the army, my mother uh worked as an office worker. Um, so just sort of middle class uh, parents, and went to the local state schools in that area. Everyone sort of went to the, and in that neighbourhood you went to either the local Catholic school or the local state school. Uh, and we went to the local state school, and it was great. It was fantastic.
1: And then you went to QUT, Queensland University of Technology, yeah, which is sort of like you know the equivalent of UTS in Brisbane. And but can I note that to get into the comms. Course, undergrad comms course at QUT. It was like a 960 TE score, which is it It was. was, You needed 990 to do medicine, so it was really competitive. It was the only communications program in the state, and no one moved into state those days. (laughs) So, uh, what? What got you there to a 960T school? Were your parents like, do your homework, get in there? and
2: Yeah, I think because, uh, like I think a lot of people, if your parents have come from... Because my parents had both come from quite um, poor and um, difficult childhoods. Uh, and they were very hard workers themselves and so they wanted a better life for their kids and so the expectation was that we're making a lot of sacrifices and working really hard and so you guys don't waste that and so then I guess there was a fair expectation that you would work hard at school and do well at school and so forth So um, and you know both my parents are, are very organised and um, sort of disciplined people, they're very work first play later sort of people um, and so I think that sort of work ethic was pretty heavily
1: instilled in us. Did that... So you weren't a partier at uni? You were a... Uh he uh, wild I, I, stories no, that we're
2: going I'm pretty square. <laughs> I definitely wasn't uh, somebody that was out, you know, rebelling and living a wild life or whatever. Mm. I think as well, because when we were at uni, um, it was when Australia was in um, the recession we had to have, and the biggest fear for everybody was that you would not get a job because the unemployment rate was so yeah. high. And so um, everybody really was working hard and and not you didn't sort of do your degree and then just bugger off overseas for a year even if you got offered a job like and you had only two subjects to go I mean I have multiple friends that had two subjects to go and then just never finished their degree because they got a job and you were just so desperate to get a job so um that was very um that was really pervasive over the whole sort of thing at, at that time Um, and also as today, journalism jobs were very hard to get and it was very competitive, like it was hard to get into the course and then it was even harder still to get a job in journalism so it was pretty
1: competitive How did your upbringing influence the journalist that you are today?
2: Um, I I think that it has made me because I still, my family's still in Queensland and I still am friends with a lot of people that I grew up with so I would like to think that I keep fairly well in touch with what people think about issues who are not journalists, rich people, um, politicians um, because I know plenty of people that would be if you had to go to the special a specialist this week that that's going to be tricky for you to juggle financially. So um, and like I remember going to um, after the 2013 federal election. Um, we my oldest friend from school, the friend I referred to before who lived around the corner, Mandy, that we used to ride our bikes around, um, it was her 40th and she was having a sort of week in Fiji and it was her, her two sisters, her mum and dad, me, my brother um, and Nobody there. Everyone's job there was like they all live in either Brisbane or regional Queensland. Everyone's job was secretary, policeman, um, office worker, legal secretary, um, beautician, like jobs like that. No, no journo's. No, no, you know, PR people. No human resources managers. Whatever. Um, and. It was really interesting, because if I had gone... It was the week sort of directly after the election. If I'd gone away with my Sydney friends, the conversation would have been non-stop about politics and how's Tony Abbott going to go and all of those sort of um, questions that people in media and politics get preoccupied with. All my Brizzy friends, they talk about issues that are political, but not in a political way. So they would talk about things like, oh, jeez, you know, the bloody road between Gladstone and Brisbane is so shit and da-da-da-da-da. And so that's a political issue, but they're not viewing it through the prism of what's Tony Abbott going to do about it. And there multiple things where people would talk about, oh, you know, I had to take so-and-so for such-and-such an operation and my bloody private health insurance only covered X, Y, Z, why do I even have it? Like, the sort of issues that I think we often cover in the news but that you're not so plugged into um, how that actually Affects people um, who are legitimately making decisions every week around their budget and what they can afford.
1: But how so, does that how does that translate into my job, what you do, and how you view what you do? I think it informs the kind of questions that I
2: try to ask. Okay. So. Um, for example, Bill Shorten was on the show last week after his budget reply and he announced the um, cancer policy and how they 're going to try to make it so you 're less out of you have fewer out of pocket expenses if you have cancer um, now anyone who 's had cancer or any form of ongoing illness knows that you just are left gigantically out of pocket um, and that you know, Medicare covers a fraction of everything and your private health covers unless you sort of hospitalize it covers hardly anything. And so um, when I was asking Shorten about that, I said, "Okay, so you're going to try to lessen the gap with Medicare. What about the fact that people pay constantly premiums for their private health and so little gets covered by private health? So I I think that I try to ask questions that, um, you know, are informed probably by what people I know in the real world experience and think about things.
1: Mm. There's maybe a danger that we have at the moment in... Uh, up-and-coming journalists who are in this room, that the number of internships that are required, right, to kind of get a job. And you can't do a a whole bunch of internships unless you're probably living at home or with someone who's paying for most of the bills. And there's a disadvantage between people who are poor and people who are wealthy as who's going to have more internships, who's going to get the job. So we're going to have perhaps a, a plethora of wealthy journalists who are making decisions and asking questions that may not reflect... The, the I am massively, to Gladstone. massively concerned about that. And there's another book that I would
2: uh, recommend by Rick Morton, who's a journalist at The Australian, called 100 Years of Dirt. And he comes from, also from Queensland, from a very um, sort of working-class family. And he just talks about the structural barriers if you don't come from a family that's got money, for example, that means that when you're at uni, you're not working two or three part-time jobs. And so he was always having to work multiple jobs because he got no money whatsoever from his family. I think there's a focus at the moment in media and lots of industries which is fantastic on diversity, and that needs to happen. Um, The the emphasis tends to be on cultural diversity, but I think there needs to also be an emphasis on economic diversity Mm. because if everybody, regardless of your cultural background, you've all gone to, you know, Sydney Grammar School and then you've gotten into whatever course you wanted at uni, you haven't had to work because you're living in a flat that mum and dad um, look after and pay for... Um, That is giving you a certain set of life experiences. And I don't judge those life experiences. It's just a certain set of life experiences that are not the same of if you've been the primary care of your mum since you were 18 um, and she has a disability. And we need people that bring all of those experiences. And the same that you want people who come from a migrant background. You want um, LGBT people. You want sort of people that bring a whole array of experiences. Because when you look out into the world at the sorts of things that you think could be a story. If you don't, for example, um, you know, have any experience of caring for somebody with special needs or a disability, that's sort of invisible to you. It's like sometimes when you have experiences with these things, it's like, wow, there's this whole world that I didn't realise actually existed and all these people out there that are trying to deal with this particular issue. Um, And that's, say, the example of Rick Morton. He does really great reporting in The Australian about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Um, And I think it's because his background means he has a really good understanding of, you know, $20 a week less for some people is really a major issue. It's the difference between, you know, paying your electricity bill and not paying your your electricity bill. And he knows that because it happened in his family. Mm. So you want, I think, that kind of, um, you know, economic and class diversity represented as well as cultural diversity.
1: So if our background does inform who we are as journalists... I want to bring up the notion of impartiality. So, in your book, Lee Sales on Doubt, <laughs> um, you, you really extol, uh, extol the virtue of impartiality, and that's something that you um, is very important to you as a person, as a journalist. Um, why is this such a big deal? I mean, we've got the world of opinion pieces; we've got everyone's got a voice. Why is impartiality still important?
2: Well. I think it's I think that this view is changing in some sectors of the media but I still hold it probably because I'm you know uh, just a product of my background and my experience in the media and my age and all the rest of it. I think that there is a huge value in the public being presented with facts by somebody who doesn't have a vested interest so that it allows them to make up their own mind what they think about Issues Like, I know myself, I don't want to be constantly force-fed views by, say, Andrew Bolt or by David Marr. I want someone to just present me, you know, as best they can with here are the facts that exist, you know, in the real world. Now, impartiality doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have an opinion about something. I think for journalists what it means is being aware that your opinion about an issue is a product of your own life experiences And it doesn't necessarily represent the truth. And it's amazing how many people have a view about something and they think, well, my view is is, it's absolutely right. How could anybody think any differently to this? Because this is the truth. Um, But it's often not the case. And so the ability to understand, okay, well, what I actually think about this... Like, say, for example, my own background, um, I've come from a family where there's a heavy emphasis on personal responsibility and taking personal responsibility. Um, So... You know that means on certain issues, I bring a mindset that 's like well don 't be a victim about it like take take control of yourself and now that is not um, that 's not a right way of thinking that 's just my way of thinking because of my background. so what I want to be aware of if i 'm doing an interview about something where you know somebody 's had a, a problem because they 've taken out a housing loan and they've gotten in over their head, my natural way of thinking is to think, well, you should have thought about that yourself and done your due diligence and it's your fault and you should have taken personal responsibility. So what I try to do is note that that's what I've thought about it and then ensure that that opinion doesn't bleed through into the kind of questions or the kind of reporting that I do. I might ask a question like that. But then I might also ensure that I ask questions that come from a different perspective.
1: So you need to be really mindful, conscious about it. Totally mindful
2: of how you think about issues all the time and being conscious of your own biases that you're bringing. And I think another way that being mindful plays into being a journalist is noticing what catches your attention because that's often a story. So if you see something and you think, oh that's Mm -hmm. unusual sometimes it's that can actually turn into a story. Um, so what was I thinking about this afternoon? And then I thought, um, oh, yeah, that might be a... Qu- oh, yeah, on electric... Guitar- electric um <laughs> guitars. Cars. <laughs> <laughs>
1: electric... Is that a Freudian slip? You're yeah. going to crack into a song? Or electric something?
2: cars. Like, I was thinking... But, you know, everyone's talking about their electricity bill being really high. Like, what would your electricity bill go up by if you were charging your, your electric car at home and you just were plugging into the PowerPoint? Mm. Um, and I just wondered it, like, idly, because I passed a Tesla charging station at Broadway and I was thinking, yeah, I wonder if you're charging it at home what it costs... And then I just sort of clocked that and thought, oh, I could ask Bill Shorten that, actually, because he's pushing... Don't it
1: you costs. love that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have a question. I'll ask the Prime... In, uh, the... the um... uh. LAUGHTER <laughs> I I don't know anything. She hasn't told me anything. Was that a Freudian (laughs) slip? You did did a a, uh, bit of a gaffe once with... um Scomo, and you said that his deputy was Chris Bowen. Yeah,
2: I called. Yeah, or
1: there was. I I, I constantly am fluffing up Chris Bowen. And you you called yourself a a nincompoop. (laughs) You said that the opposition shadow, the shadow treasurer, uh, was going to speak with the then treasurer, Chris Morris. Always after the election because you're so used to calling somebody the shadow or the whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of
2: flips, so yeah, it's easy to mess it up.
1: Um, So back to impartiality and thanks for your insights around you know seeing something that makes you curious and that can possibly be a story How do you know when something is going to be your own bias? Is it a trigger or when did you start to see... Because, you know, we have unconscious biases. What is it that makes you aware of what your biases have been?
2: Just the constant paying attention to it. And and particularly if you feel really strongly about something, I think that that's often a... um, You know, just to ask yourself, why do I feel so strongly about this? Or if you feel strongly about something and other people feel very strongly in a different direction about it then, you know, maybe that's a sign that it's an issue that does have, you know, multiple viewpoints. But then I think the useful thing, you know, when you talk about impartiality, it sort of leads into, you know, fairness and balance and questions like that. You have to also be careful that you don't set up a a thing where you have false balance because, say, for example, in the issue of climate change, it's not, um, you know... The the existence of climate change should not be, in any journalistic story... ...balanced equally with people who argue that climate change doesn't exist... ...because the actual reality doesn't reflect that. So if you go and look at, you know, bodies as diverse as the Chinese government... ...NASA, BHP, Westpac Bank, um, the German government, um, the Royal Academy in London... ...all of these very diverse range of organisations absolutely say that, you know... ...human-induced climate change exists the people, if you looked at the sort of scientific body um, you know, maybe 0.05% of scientists would have any queries about it, so therefore why would you elevate the anti-climate change view to 50%? Mm. It's not That does not reflect mm. actual reality. So there's not, I, I think, you know, you need to when you're looking at fairness and impartiality and bias and all these things, also look at provable fact and one of the things that really bothers me and that I write about in On Doubt is that I think in the past sort of 20 years, we've seen not just a contest in the area of opinion, but facts becoming contested and that people have their own facts. Uh, And that I find incredibly disturbing, because if we can't sort of say, "All right, here are the facts, we can therefore, and now we will have our argument about what is the best policy to address this factual set of circumstances. Once we start contesting the facts, then I think that that becomes a really difficult uh, area.
1: What do we do with that? What do I, you do you with that? What,
2: I, I wish I knew the answer to that because it just so profoundly disturbs me. And when I first wrote On Doubt in 2007, um, we were at the start, I think, of this... Um, what do they call it? Uh, Distinction between what was called by someone in the Bush White House the reality-based universe that someone like me tries to inhabit and a universe in which we're making up our alternate reality and sort of spinning it and pitching it. Um, and I have been absolutely shocked to see how much further we have progressed down that um, road and that now, say, with the Trump White House, you have somebody who demonstrably as President of the United States tells lies and I don't say that lightly because in my job I wouldn't normally accuse a a political leader of being a liar but I think it is a demonstrable fact that he lies the thing that disturbs me about that is previously if you told as many lies you would not be able to survive as a a leader if you were busted in that many lies but now it doesn't seem to matter so much Um, and I just find that absolutely profoundly disturbing Um, and I don't know where it's going and what the answers to it Uh, I just try to keep my little niche of the media being you know hopefully grounded in reality
1: Mm. the rise of opinion and you know opinion pieces I think I think you wrote about it or spoke about uh, opinion writers often are paid more for less work and that there's advantages in everyone having, having a platform for their opinion and the value of that and the diversity of voices, but also the increasing polarisation of conversation around, it's, it, this is what I believe, no, this is what I believe, as opposed to what you're talking about, let's try and deal with the facts, ma'am. And, um, but many of us don't necessarily want to work in the news because it's just so damn depressing. Yeah, um, I mean, you, you, you wrote yourself that news is becoming increasingly, uh, increasingly depressing and is increasingly upsetting, more upsetting than ever.
2: Oh, I think, um, and part of the reason I find that increasingly upsetting is because of the peddling of just untruths, sort mm-hmm. of unchallenged, um, and the backing in of that by certain sectors of the media. I think the news has always been depressing, <laughs> But I think there's a... At the moment, there's a degree of global instability that makes it feel sort of, um, or for me at least, I feel a bit sort of rattled by how much instability there is. And also, I think the pace of technological change has been so massive over the past decade that that it just feels like, man, the world is just changing so fast right in front of us. I think as well, for me, when I was a field reporter... um, You know, sometimes you're doing a story about a political debate. Sometimes you might be doing that some Australians made the US Open final and then you might be doing Hurricane Katrina or then you might be doing somebody whose husband's been killed in Iraq. But you're not immersed all the time in the saddest and most horrible stories. Bizarrely, as uh, the anchor of a show, really every night my show is pretty much a parade of the random catastrophe that can befall people, whether it's that you made a bad decision on a loan and and when you're age 65 you just lost all of your life savings that you can't make up or whether it's that you were just having a normal day at work and you felt a bit funny and then you've got meningococcal and you've lost all your limbs Um, or you've been a terrorist in a... uh, Sorry, you've been a um, victim of a terrorist attack at the Lynn Cafe, thought you were just meeting a friend for a coffee. My show is a constant parade of that and so... Be like that means I'm immersed in that far more than I used to be as a general reporter. can right. get a reprieve
1: from that. Sounds <laughs> terrible. On one <long-term. laughs> Um it is sort of is is, is uh, chat ten look three kind of an antidote oh, totally. to that. Oh god, yeah, yeah. That's I mean misery yeah. that yeah. comes across your desk. But yeah. how much uh, control do you have over the agenda? Over what seven thirty does cover? You, you mentioned the news doesn't help you assess the gravest risks yeah. to your safety but it distracts you by redirecting your fears to things that don't place you in much danger at all, like the flash flooding, like a terrorist incident, like Manager Cockle, things that are statistically very, very, very unlikely to cross our path. But that's what we'll start worrying about because that's what we're being presented in the news. Mm-hmm. Do you have an influence in 7.30, what's covered?
2: Yeah, but I think that that's just the nature of the news. I wouldn't go into 7.30 and go, um, oh, we need to not cover that terrorist attack because it's just really depressing. And, you know, <laughs> most people in Australia went about life today and they didn't weren't in a terrorist attack, so let's focus on that. Like, I wouldn't do that because I think the nature of the news is to focus on the aberration. But in terms of, like, to give you an idea of, say, an average day at 7.30... So, um, the executive producer of 7.30, who is absolutely amazing, uh, Justin Stevens, his name is, um, he and I, from when we wake up, we'll often be texting back and forth, or sometimes we have a phone call about what's in the news, what's in the papers, um, what's happened overnight, because obviously things can have happened in, in Europe and the US overnight, and so sometimes we need to get moving really fast. Like, if we need an interview out of America, we'll be sort of onto it straight away, We have a conference call then at nine o'clock with the rest of the team and we talk about, invariably we'll have some stories that are pre-prepared and that have been, you know, in the can ready to go Um, and then we'll talk about what's happening today that we need to get on top of and so that can be some people will say, oh I think we need to do this and Justin will say, oh I don't think so or I'll say yeah I think that'd be good and then we'll say, well what about interview wise, should we go for short and today and we'll go no, well I think the story today is really with Morrison or, so we sort of chew over all the ideas at, at that meeting you've got your sort of wish list of you know who you'd absolutely like so say take Thursday for example um, you know uh, Israel Folau we would have liked so if you're not getting Israel Folau then are you getting uh, Michael Checker the coach um, and then you know as the day progresses news happens so then it um, I think it was about seven thirty-two when the Julian Assange news came mm. then we have to move into getting that so over the course of the day um, what time do you start well six am when I wake up really well you 're not in the office, but you just you 've got to be looking at everything, listening to everything and be across it straight away yep so then yep, yeah, so we do the conference call at nine o'clock. Then normally I have a couple of hours where I can just do go to the gym or do whatever. I try to go in around eleven and then it 's a case of either my job will either be trying to talk people into coming on the show, so ringing people, trying to find out information, trying to persuade them why they should come on. Um, or let's say... What's your pitch? Depends on the person. Hi, it's Lee Sales from the ABC. <laughs> depends on the person and what's in it for them. You're never thinking, like, what's in it for... You. Like, what's in it for me is I want a hole in my show field. They don't, why, why, why do they care about that? So it's always got to be what's in it for them. Um, and that depends on the person and on the story.
1: thought sort of about for... for um... Give give us an example, uh, Israel.
2: What, what, what did we'll you try? We'll say uh, Michael Checker. Who okay. Was, so Israel Falao couldn't be reached. So so then you move to you. Okay, who else would we like? Well, we'd like Michael Checker. So Justin, I don't know anything about sport. So Justin says to me, Michael Checker is a really smart guy. I bet he's a fan of Seven Thirty. I bet he watches it. You should text him personally. Like don't don't get the producer to do it. You should do it because he might want to talk to you. So I've texted him and said, um, hi. Um, sorry to. Send an uninvited text. It's Lee Sales. We like to, we're covering this story tonight. You'd be our number one person. We'd like to talk to. And so, then, even
1: though he wasn't,
2: <laughs> yeah, you're always, everyone's always your number one person.
1: That's for sure. Uh, Sorry, I just write that down now. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, you were our number one person tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Shorten wasn't available.
0: <laughs> Sorry.
2: So then you're sort of waiting and then you're thinking, all right, what are our real chances of getting Michael Checker? Okay, probably what, what would be in it for him? Mm, it's going to be tricky because they, they're working out what they're doing. Are they going to sack Valau or not? Why would the coach want to speak publicly? We'd better get a plan, you know, be in place. So then the producer will be calling, say, commentators or people... So then in this instance, Michael Checker did ring me back and he said, oh, I love I love your show, you know, blah, blah. I don't normally ring journalists, but, you know, i like you. So then I think, oh, great, okay, <laughs> good. So then we have an actual conversation about this is what we're thinking, this is what we'd be interested in talking to you about, and then the person will often say, well, this is what I'm thinking and this is why I don't really want to do it at the moment. And then you'll go, well, okay, I'll take that on board, but what about blah, blah, blah. So it's just a straight... Frankly, it's almost like sales, really, and I'm not very good at it, to be honest. Justin... Um... Which is, is remarkable, considering
1: it's your last name.
0: <laughs> like. And that is where we have to leave the discussion. You've been listening to Lee Sales talking about her career. She was talking with Wendy John as part of UTS's Meet the Journalist series. You can find the full talk at the UTS website. And thank you for listening to The 4th Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of TuroCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Make sure you subscribe to 4 Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4 for State AU. My name is Anthony Dockville. Thanks for listening.